Street or Silicon Valley for Americans. Not merely centers of power and authority as such, but also centers of interpretive or hermeneutical power. Government, finance, and technology, insofar as they provide frames of reference for making sense of the world, count as religion. And I think I would be remiss if I did fail to call attention to the fact that as of last Sunday, the faithful began once again to flock to the temples of tackling and touchdowns and trash talk. The NFL season has begun. American football, as also the rest of our stadium sports, has its own religion-like signifiers. Vestments of face and belly paint, jerseys and cheese heads, its own timbrel and dance, its own wave offerings and other rites. As the baseball cardinals let us down, swept by the <coughs> Cubs, we turn our affections to the football Rams and wonder whether Messiah Sam might lead us to the promised land of the playoffs. Not only do leaders in government and finance and technology belong to our notables or notable men, but also celebrities in sports and other entertainments. They are those to whom the people come, which is to say those on whom people rely. Kalneh, Hamat, and Philistine Gath, Amos demands that the notables, the leaders of Israel and Judah take notice. The easy inference from the prophet's rhetoric is that these places have experienced some sort of calamity, though what sort remains unspecified. The point is nevertheless clear. Whatever had happened to those kingdoms could also happen to Israel and Judah. There but for the grace of God, there but for the grace of God go I. That remark has been bouncing around in my head ever since President Meyer used it in his homily for the opening service. I googled it and its origin is about as untraceable as that of the planting an apple tree remark attributed to Luther. A variant of it used to be attributed to the English reformer and martyr John Bradford, but there isn't any solid evidence to substantiate that. At any rate, President Meyer urged us not to think in the way of that expression in our encounters with especially poverty-stricken and crime-ridden cities, which certainly includes portions of St. Louis. And from one perspective, I wholeheartedly agree. If the perlocutionary effect, you'll learn that word in hermeneutics, of an encounter with such disadvantaged communities is nothing more than a sigh of relief and under that sigh the words, there but for the grace of God go I, and then a return to life as usual, then yes, we should stop our mouths and repent. And yet from a different vantage point, it is hard to imagine truer words. It is only by the grace of God that we do not find ourselves in such predicaments. So what might that mean and why? Whatever else has or hasn't changed over the summer, I have become aware that I am being changed. I don't know what the end or goal of that change will be. I only know that I am seeing certain things differently and that's because I'm serving presently on a grand jury in the city of St. Louis. Yesterday was the end of the sixth week of our 13-week term. 
It has become discouraging to send case after case to trial for possession of controlled substances, cocaine base and heroin and PCP and ecstasy and prescription medicines like Vicodin, to send case after case to trial for an assortment of weapons charges, for assaults, domestic and otherwise. The human waste, the human cost is appalling. And this cost isn't confined to one racial community. Drug customers come from more affluent outlying communities to satisfy their habits. I could go on for a while, but I will offer only one anecdote from the many cases we've heard. Wednesdays are reserved generally for sexual crimes, domestic abuse, and child abuse. We heard a case a few weeks ago in which a child had made three visits to area emergency rooms within a period of about four or five weeks. And on the third visit, which was a return to the first hospital, the ER personnel came to the conclusion that there was a pattern to his need for care. I won't describe his injuries, but I will report that the investigators took pictures. What struck me and strikes me still was that every time the camera included that little child's face, he had a smile from ear to ear. Now my interpretation is not infallible, but my impression is that he was smiling because perhaps for the first time he was the center of genuine care and gentle affection. It has become distressing to me to consider that a whole generation of people might already be lost to the impulses they have acquired. It grieves me that the little ones seem destined to learn the same disregard for life, theirs and others. It strikes me as urgent, therefore, to figure out how to break the chain. Amos warned the people of his time who were living cushy lives, who had on blinders, who thought that their nation was insulated or exempt from catastrophe, to shake them out of their national complacency and their theological or religious complacency as well. He told them to look around at others whose city-states had collapsed, probably overrun by Assyrian conquest. He warned Israel and Judah that they too were vulnerable to external invasion because of their internal corruption. But Kalna, Hamat, and Gath are not away places for us. They are neighborhoods that are near, though we try to imagine they are not. The church in America is thoroughly embedded. It is the church in America. We are, therefore, on the one hand, always at risk of letting our national context and political and economic culture subordinate our identity as God's holy nation, the people of his possession, an identity that is ours by the grace of God. We remain, however, the church in America. We cannot, therefore, on the other hand, ignore the predicaments of those in our nation, in our city, to whom this grace has not yet come. There, but for the grace of God. In fact, we all were in such a there, where grace was not alienated from God, hostile in our attitudes toward him, following our own impulses, dead in trespasses and sins. 
there, but for the grace of God, we still would be. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, redeemed us, as Luther says, lost and condemned creatures. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, he died for us. By grace, we are saved. Jesus came into our world, into our neighborhood, and he broke the chain of the self-destruction of sin. But for the grace of God in Christ, we still would be there. Because of the grace of God, we are not. We're changed. And part of that change, I think, is a different outlook, a different sensitivity and sensibility about those to whom grace has not yet come. In the Hom Helps, my comments on theology of place tilted toward care of the land, the church's sacramental role toward the rest of creation in a wider sense. I haven't relinquished that view, but as I said earlier, I am being changed. Our care of creation entails a care of and for people. Creation and redemption are distinguishable but not divisible, not to be confused or divided. Near the end of the Hom Helps, I referred to an essay that began with part of a conversation between Wendell Berry and his friend, Wes Jackson. They were trying to define an economy that would be comprehensive enough to counteract exploitation of the land. What they arrived at also answers the question of an economy, a practice, a way of living, which acts for the care and not for the exploitation of people. It is the kingdom of God, God's gracious governance in the lives and hearts of his people. I used to think I could detach myself from the problems of certain neighborhoods in St. Louis. The people there needed to assume responsibility, but I am increasingly uncomfortable with that posture. The church has the gospel, the message that not only declares, but also performs, enacts the grace of God. It will be woe to us if we neglect to share it. It will be grace to us if we do. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.